reading from Acts 25, verse 23, to chapter 26, verse 32. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man? The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I thought it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defence. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusation of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. 
I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar, familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all those who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for those in chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, here we are, Acts chapter 26. Uh, and we're going to be thinking a lot about this passage today. So keep up in chapter 25 and 26, and uh, we'll, we'll be bouncing in and out of those chapters. Um, why don't I pray as we get started? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak powerfully to us through it. We pray that today you would transform us as well. As you always do, when your word goes out, it does not return to you empty. We pray that you would be at work in us today. Amen. Well, there's uh, an episode of Bluey that my family loves. It's, a, it's the episode that's called Teasing. And in fact, my girls thought that I needed to watch this episode so much that after seeing it for the very first time, they dragged me in front of the TV and sat me down in front of it to watch it. And as I sat there, it slowly dawned on me what was going on. The episode teasing all begins with little Bingo, okay? Little Bingo being upset about something that Dad, otherwise known as Banjo, has said to her or done to her, complaining that Dad was teasing her. Bandit, he was rather shocked and he thought, 
well, he, he, he was shocked that poor little Bingo was so upset about what had just happened because he thought he was just having fun. And then, in, for the rest of the episode, the kids and mum recount story after story after story after story where dad had been teasing the kids. And with each story, my kids looked at me with these eyes that, of accusation <laughs> that just grew with intent as the stories were piled up against Bandit throughout the series, the seven-minute series. The episode ends with Bandit realising that there was a very fine line between playing and teasing. And then the girls looked at me with eyes that said, See, Dad, you're a big teaser. At which point I said, What? I'm just having fun. I'm always just joking around with you girls. And then, essentially, we just relived the whole episode in our lounge room as they recounted story against story after story against me. Now, what is it that makes Bluey uh, such a success? Well, it's it's just that it tells stories, right? Bluey is essentially one real-life story after another told through these characters of a Blue Healer family. And so when you sit down and you watch Bluey, particularly as a family man, as I am, you you can understand it and you can relate to it. It's your everyday life. It's telling you stories that you can relate to in, in, in the everyday world. And that's why it's not just the kids who like Bluey, but the whole family enjoys Bluey, right? I've, I, I know there are some of you here who, after the kids go to bed, play a few episodes of Bluey together. I know you've done that. And what we see in this, uh, and the reason for that is, is, is that it just tells stories. Now, storytelling is very powerful. And that's what we see in this section of Acts. We get to witness the power of storytelling as a way of presenting the gospel. And the reality is that this great power of, that this is actually the great power of the gospel. Because the gospel is not, it's not just a belief system, it's not just a philosophy, it's not just a bunch of propositions and data that you can present, but the gospel is a story. It's a story that tells us all about God. A story that tells us about God's unfolding plan of salvation through the Son that He loves. A true story that tells us why we exist and how we came to be and what our purpose is in life and and how we can have relationship with God. So that's the big story, right? But within that story are little stories about the people that God has redeemed through His Son, Jesus. And each of those stories is a story that is worth telling because it's connected to the big story. It's connected to God's story. And then even in these chapters, we have a story within a story. So the whole of the book of Acts is telling a story about the gospel of Jesus being taken from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the very ends of the earth. And then chapters 21 to 28, that's a little, uh, little segment that tells us all about Paul going to Jerusalem and then in chains the gospel is taken to Rome. And then within Acts chapter 21 to 28, we have these little stories of conversion that Paul retells a couple of times, where Paul is defending himself against his accusers. So what we're going to do is we're just going to look at Paul's story to start with and then glean some stuff from it. 
So let's have a look. The first thing we see about Paul's story is that it's a story of injustice. If you've got your outlines open in, uh, uh, from the QR code there, you can follow along there. It's a story of injustice. So to give you a bit of context, the end of the previous chapter, Paul is in Caesarea and he's uh, in prison there, but he's been treated with a degree of kindness by the guy who was in power at the time, a fellow called Felix. Paul was allowed at that point to have friends attend to his need. He was given freedoms by Felix. He had multiple opportunities to present the gospel to Felix. But there was no real reason for Paul to be there. He was innocent. And then at the end of chapter 24, two years of this goes by and Paul is still in prison and Felix moves on and Festus moves in as the governor. And the Jewish leaders, they take the changing of the guard as, uh, as an opportunity to represent their charges against Paul. They, they present their charges against Paul all over again. And in the end, Festus, well, he has no idea what to do with it. And so when the king, Agrippa, and his sister Bernice come to Caesarea, they talk about the case. Okay, so this is what happens in, in verse 18. Festus says this, when his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem. Paul didn't want to go to Jerusalem because that's where they were going to try and kill him. And so he says, but when Paul made his appeal, to, to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. Right, so Paul is innocent. Festus can't work out what the Jews are up about, you know, what, what their problem with Paul is. And, when, and then Agrippa actually asks to speak with Paul himself. But before his hearing... And after his hearing, there's these real statements of his innocence. Have a look in verse 24. King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man, the whole Jewish com community has petitioned me about, the, about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death. So that is before his healing, hearing, and then after his hearing, there's another statement of his innocence in verse 30. Have a look in chapter 26, this is. Chapter 26, verse 30. It says, The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those with them, those sitting with them, after they had left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And so part of Paul's story is his innocence. Here is an innocent man on trial for accusations that have been levelled against him by the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders. They couldn't see what the fuss was about. And there's a parallel here to Jesus and Jesus' innocence before Pilate. There's a real sense of deja vu as you read through these chapters. An innocent man on trial for the crimes he did not commit. 
And so when he gets his chance to defend himself, well, where does he start? Well, have a look. He starts right back at the very beginning. We learn about Paul's religious upbringing. Verse 4. He says, The Jewish people... Excuse me for a moment. All know the way I have, ever, I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in, in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long, a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. So this is your classic kind of Sarah story, right? I grew up going to church. I never doubted that God was there. Mum and Dad used to take me to Sunday school every week. I knew the scriptures inside out. I knew all the stories in the Bible. And then he lived as a Pharisee. He had this strict adherence to the law, passion and zeal for keeping God's law. He was a church kid. Now this is important in the context because he's actually trying to declare his innocence here. He's saying, the hope that I have in the gospel and my desire to serve God day and night actually began in the same place as these Jews who were trying to kill me. What I'm on trial for here is believing what, that, 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 God has, that what God has promised our ancestors has actually been fulfilled. Right? So, so he's saying, that's my background. I grew up going to synagogue, listening to the same scriptures these Jewish guys who were trying to kill me were listening to. But as he continues his story, we see his religion turn to fanaticism, if you like. Verse 9. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Right? And, and again, the context we see here is, is Paul's, he's trying to show, oh, I was one of those guys. I was one of the guys who now want me dead. He begins this whole section by saying, I, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus. Paul's past was that he was one of the people who are now accusing him and want him dead. And he's saying, that was me. I was one of these guys. And in fact, the very first time we meet Paul in the Bible is Acts chapter 8, verse 1. After the stoning of Stephen, the first recorded death of a Christian for believing in Jesus, and it simply says this, and Saul, who became Paul, approved of their killing him. Friends, this is who Paul was, a religious fanatic who pursued and harassed and persecuted Christians even to the point of death. This is why later in his letter he says to Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul's story includes a very dark past. 
Now, maybe you're here today and you're not yet a Christian. Perhaps you're checking out Jesus and you think, there is no way God could forgive me. Or maybe you've lived as a Christian for a little while, but you're ashamed of your past, ashamed of your present, and you think, there is no way that God could forgive me. Well, Paul is your guy, right? God wants to say to you, by saving Paul, that there is no way that you have done more than you can be forgiven for. This guy may have been a religious man, but his fanaticism drove him to be responsible for enabling the murder of more than one civilian, innocent civilian. And yet, God's grace is enough for Paul. Do you know that grace yet? Well, have a look what happens next. Verse 12. On one of these journeys, I was going down to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Two things I want us to note here. The first is Jesus' stance on Paul's attack on the Christians. Notice that Jesus took Paul's attack on the Christians very personally. He took it as an attack on him. Now, now why is that? Well, at one level, it's because Jesus is the head of the church and the church is called the body of Christ. And so an attack on the people of God is actually an attack on him. An attack on the people that Jesus died for is actually an attack on Jesus himself. But on another level, this is simply the nature of sin, yeah? When we sin against someone else, we are not only causing offence and damage or wrong to that person, but we're at the same time and more profoundly actually causing offence to Jesus. That's the big thing we need to understand about sin in the Bible. When we sin against others, sure we hurt one another, but God in the, in, in the end is the one who is most wronged. Which actually does this wonderful thing of creating a level playing field for all of us. It's not that one of us needs a little bit of forgiveness and, and another one of us needs a lot of forgiveness. No, we all need God's abundant grace and mercy in order to be saved. We all need God to actually lavish his love on us through his son's death because all of us have wronged God. But the second thing I want us to see here is Paul's conviction about Jesus. What is the thing that helped him to know that the gospel was true? What is it that turned Jesus's, uh, sorry, sorry, turned Paul from Jesus' persecutor to a, a Jesus proclaimer? Well, it's the resurrection of Jesus. The confrontation with Jesus on the roads of Damascus, that is the deciding factor for Paul. When you read 1 Corinthians 15, this is the way he recounts the gospel. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you, Corinthians, as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. 
And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared <coughs> to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. So when he tells his story, the resurrection of Jesus, the appearance of Jesus is this pivotal point for him. Why? Well, we know how important the resurrection is, right? It's important for salvation. A little bit later on, he kind of fleshes out just how important the resurrection is for salvation. So in 1 Corinthians 15, he goes on to say, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. See what he's saying? He's saying if there's no resurrection, then Jesus is still dead. He's still in the grave. There is no forgiveness. His resurrection, though, proves that Jesus has dealt with sin and death once and for all. But I think as he tells his story to Agrippa and Bernice, what he's trying to communicate to them at this point is that the resurrection was the event that meant he could no longer deny that Jesus was the promised Messiah of his Jewish scriptures that he grew up with, that he read as a child. Remember what he says at the beginning of his speech, verse 6, chapter 36, uh, 26, verse 6. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. The resurrection is the great fulfillment of the promises that were made to the Jewish nation. And that is his point of conviction. That is what he's trying to communicate with Agrippa. I can no longer deny, he says, that Jesus is the great promised king. He says a very similar thing in earlier speeches in Acts, in, in the city in Antioch. He says in the synagogue there, he says, we tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. The resurrection tells Paul that Jesus is the promised Old Testament king. And Paul's conversion all centers around that historical event that took place that he got to personally witness. And this conversion experience, this encounter with the risen Jesus actually shapes his future. And you see what it is, see how it changes him in verse 16. Now get up and stand on your feet. This is Jesus speaking. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and, may place, uh, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not obedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me, but God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer. And, be the, and, as, and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Do you see his future here? 
the conversion experience on the road to Damascus completely changes the, the direction of Paul's life. He goes from persecuting the church to proclaiming the good news about Jesus. Now, now this is kind of unique to Paul's conversion experience. Paul is uniquely called by God to preach the gospel to, in particular, the Gentile nations in a way that we're not. And he's acutely aware of this. He, he actually, this defines the rest of his life. And so you've got Peter and James in the book of Acts. They're back in Jerusalem looking after the Jewish converts. But Paul, he heads out on all these missionary journeys across the place, proclaiming the good news of Jesus to non-Jewish nations surrounding the nation of Israel. We're not called and sent in the same way. And yet, when we're saved, it ought to radically reshape the way we live. See, in salvation, we're not simply forgiven, but we're brought into a new relationship with the Father. And by the Spirit of God, He gives us new passions and desires and burdens that are not the same passions, desires and burdens that we used to have. It'll change the way that we think about relationships and money and the way, and the way we think about work. It'll change what we spend our time doing. And friends, if it hasn't, why not? Meeting Jesus ought to turn your life upside down. And part of that is we are given a new mission. Not a particular mission like Paul is given, but we are saved and sent into our world, into our workplaces, into our sports teams, into our, into our friendship circles with this wonderful news of Jesus. Mission is a part of your story. So how are you going with that? How are you going with that? Well, one way we can get on board with mission is to actually learn how to tell your story about Jesus. And what we have here in Acts chapter 26 is actually a really good model of how to do that. If, if you can kind of think about your story the way that Paul does, it's, it's actually a really helpful framework. Essentially what he does is he breaks it down into three parts. Before Jesus, what was I like? And for Paul that was he was religious that turned to fanaticism. How did I come to know Jesus? Now for Paul that was his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus and his conviction point was the resurrection of Jesus. How has Jesus changed me? Well for Paul again you've got this new mission, this particular mission given to him by God to the Gentiles. Now that little framework can actually be easily translated into your story. Even if your story starts with, I can't remember a time where I didn't know Jesus. Praise God. If that's your story, praise God. You ought to praise God for the fact that you cannot remember a time where you didn't know Jesus. Then the key there is to actually make sure that you tell people why you keep following Jesus? Why didn't you just kind of slip out of church into, in your teens or in your university years? Or was there a time where you really doubted God or, 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 or perhaps walked away from God for a time? What helped you to overcome that doubt? What helped you to, over, to come back to church, to come back full circle to God? Your story, even when it starts with, I've always known about Jesus, is a miraculous story. 
of God's work in your life. But as you tell your story, you need to make it you need to make sure that it is your story, right? It needs to be about how Jesus has changed your life. And at the same time, remember that it's not primarily about you. Your story is actually Jesus' story. It's all about Jesus' work on you. So particularly in the middle part of that framework, you want to be thinking, well, what is the thing that has tipped the balance for me? What is the thing that has convinced me that Jesus is is the way to live and then somehow communicate that maybe it was understanding what his death meant for the very first time perhaps it was a gradual process of realizing that god wanted to take wanted you to take him seriously and live wholeheartedly for him was it seeing that the bible was true and not a fairy tale and so therefore you had to begin to listen to what the bible actually said and it was then that you understood the gospel Was it the hope of heaven? You could see life just kind of disintegrating around you, falling apart, and Jesus provided real hope in a world that seemed hopeless. For me, I'd been going to Bible study for some time, and I was living two lives. One life before my churchy friends on Sunday, after Bible study, all that sort of stuff, and another life with my mates from school and whilst I kind of knew it was wrong and felt insanely guilty most of my life and whilst I I had no problems with the idea that Jesus' death had achieved forgiveness and salvation I hadn't come to believe the gospel enough for it to actually change the way that I lived it wasn't until just after high school that I saw that life with Jesus was actually the best life that I could live. And it was then that I essentially said to God, all right, I give up. I am all yours. Understanding that Jesus wanted all of my life and not just part of my life, that was huge for me. So understand the framework, communicate what Jesus has done in your life, and it's important to remember the goal of telling your story. The goal of telling your story is actually to tell people about Jesus. See, the thing about a story is it's it's kind of easy to tell a story because people can't argue with your story because it's your story. They can't say, no, that didn't happen because it did happen, right? It's your story. It's hard for them to refute it. But there should be enough in your story about Jesus that means that it will have an effect on the hearer other than, oh, that's nice. It's interesting. Good for you. What we're actually trying to do as we tell our story is is impress upon people the fact that, that we want them to know Jesus too. And I reckon this is so hard to do. See, it's not just an interesting story, but we, we, we actually want them to know, love, and trust Jesus as well. So have a look what p- happens when Paul tells his story in verse 25. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul. He shouted. That may be the response people give you. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. 
I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? First, you see Festus is outraged at the content of Paul's story. Why? Well, have a look at the verse beforehand. In verse 22, he's saying, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. See, there's enough in there that about Jesus and the implications of the gospel that Festus is outraged. He can see that what Paul is saying is that Jesus' death and resurrection means that Paul wants him, a Gentile, to trust the gospel. This is not just a Jewish thing anymore. This is for you, most excellent Festus. You also see his intentions more starkly as he addresses Agrippa. He says, do you believe the prophets? And then he answers for him, I know you do. And I love Agrippa's response. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? See, the intention of telling your story over, I guess, sharing a gospel outline is not so that you don't cause offence. It's not so that people can dismiss you easily. No, it's so that you can tell them about Jesus and you can show them how Jesus has radically and profoundly impacted your life. You are living, walking proof that the gospel is not just an idea, but a truth that has profoundly shaped the person you are. And here's the thing. If you have been living genuinely, faithfully, before other people as a believer, then I think they're already asking the question, what makes that person tick? What makes them different? And your story is, is your way of simply saying, Jesus is the difference in my life. He's the one I live for. And by implication, you should live for him too. You should follow Jesus too. Here's the last tip I think we can glean from Paul's story. We need to pray for the people that we're able to share the story with. Have a look what happens with Paul in verse 20, 29 there. This is after Agrippa says, Can you make me a Christian? after such a short time. Short time along, I pray to God that not only you, but, to all, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. There's a couple of things going on here. Paul tells everyone listening that he wants them to be a Christian here at this point. And I, I reckon this is where I mess up. I talk with my friends, I share my testimony, I share bits and pieces of the gospel when I can, but I think it's just interesting information for them. Do they know that I actually want them to trust Jesus too? Have I told them that? It's challenging, isn't it? But I think the most profound thing here is the power of prayer. Are you praying for your contacts in your life? Are you praying for them? For the people that you'd love to share the gospel with or have shared the gospel with? And if not, why not? It's 
not because you think that you can do God's work of salvation without him, is it? I don't think that would be the case. So why don't we pray? For a while now, I've been praying for three blokes uh, and two of them came along to the fatherhood night. And at that night, we spoke about things there that we've never spoken about before. We didn't get to talk about the gospel, but it was a wonderful opportunity to lay the foundation where they get to see a little bit of how the gospel can shape the person that they are and change the outcomes of their life. But, but to move them from that point, that initial conversation, to the point where they know and love Jesus, that is not going to happen unless I am on my knees in prayer. Friends, you have a story, a story of how Jesus has changed your life and makes you the person you are today. And the power of that story is in its telling. Can I encourage you to take responsibility for working out what your story is and start talking about it? Why don't I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Paul, his courage, his boldness as he proclaims Jesus in these difficult settings while he's in chains, in prison. We thank you for the imperial guard that got to hear the gospel the day that he shared it. Father, we pray that you would help us to have moments and opportunities where we can speak about Jesus, where we can share our story. Help us to take responsibility for working out what our story is and sharing that, for doing the the hard work of thinking about what is it that actually convinced me about Jesus? What is it that, that, that changes me? What is it that keeps me? Help us to think about these things so we can communicate them with the people we love and to anyone who will listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.